0: All right, thanks, Greg. Good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. We are in the book of Ezra today. I said Esther mistakenly last week, but it's actually the book of Ezra. And today we see the people of Israel and Judah brought back into the land. They're emerging from their time of exile. God has remembered Israel and is going to bring his people back. And he is bringing his people back. And he even caused the temple worship to be restored, and that's the title of today's class today, Restoring Worship. Here's the outline for today's class. We're going to kind of jump right into it, an overview of the historical details of Israel's return from exile. We're going to look at Ezra 1-6, to the first half of the book of Ezra, and Israel's experience of restoration, and the first step of restoration, and then we'll finish by considering application for ourselves. Now, as Greg said, it's, it's good that you're sitting up closer to the front, or I would encourage you to sit up closer because it's more helpful for me to see you, and I'm going to be asking questions that I'd like you to answer today, and we're going to try the whole raising the hand thing because I can see you pretty decently. I might not be able to completely make out some of the people who sit further back, but if you raise your hand, I'll call on you, and then we'll answer questions that way. So don't be hesitant to answer the questions. Just go, go right ahead and answer it so that uh, we can keep moving. But when I ask questions, go ahead and raise your hand, and then I'll, I'll call on you. We'll see if that works. <laughs> but anyways, and when you speak, speak loudly and clearly. Enunciate as much as possible so that I can understand what you're saying. All right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. The Lord God, thank you this time in Sunday school today. We thank you for the truths of your word. They're so necessary for our equipping and for our life. I pray, God, that you'd help me to be able to speak. I'm going to be able to articulate your word clearly. And I pray that your word would bless us today, that it would encourage us, convict us, build us up. With spirit, I pray that you build up your church in Jesus Christ. I pray that you build up your church. Father, please build up your church today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Please open your Bibles to Ezra 1. Ezra 1, page 43 if you're using the Pew Bible. Ezra appears right before Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalms. So, kind of towards the beginning half of the Old Testament. Just just me. My... Okay. So, before we read Ezra 1, we want to get the big picture of the return from exile for the Jews. First of all, we need to know that while the Jews are in exile, there is a change in the region's ruling empire. The Babylonian empire is gone. It's replaced by the Persian empire around 538 BC by Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great. You can see on the map over here, the extent of the Persian empire, the green is the, uh, the empire under Cyrus, and then the other colors are brought in by his descendants. There are five, or there are five rulers that we want to know and that we currently know from history and archaeology, but these five rulers roughly span the time of the rest of the Old Testament. The first is Cyrus II, ruled from about 560 to 530 BC, then Cambyses II, Second who ruled from about 530 to 522, Darius the I, who ruled from about 522 to 486, and Xerxes the First, who probably is the Bible's Ahasuerus, though some people say Ahasuerus is an alternate title for Darius. I think Xerxes makes a little bit better sense, but Xerxes I the I is the next one. He rules from 486 to 465, and then Artaxerxes First. 465 to 424. So you're going to hear some of those names again in today's class, but also in the rest of the classes that we have. So we've got a change in the ruling empire, we have a change or we have a change in the succession of different rulers. And then another thing to know is that just as Judah experienced three steps of destruction going into exile, so Israel and Judah are going to experience three steps of restoration coming back from exile. And the first step, and you can see the different steps uh, laid out for you on the slide. The first step happens under Cyrus around 537 BC. And this phase, Zerubbabel returns with a group of Jews to Jerusalem and rebuilds the temple. This is the first step of restoration. The second step occurs under Artaxerxes around 467 BC. So there's a jump in time. And in this phase, Ezra returns with a group of Jews to Jerusalem. And he begins a preaching ministry to stem some new compromises that have appeared in israel that's the second step and then the third step comes shortly afterwards also under artaxerxes in 454 bc and that's under nehemiah and you remember nehemiah is the one who returns and builds the wall of jerusalem now notice that ezra and nehemiah are contemporaries they live about the same time but zerubbabel he comes much earlier so that's important to remember You should also note that the dates I'm giving you are according to answers in Genesis' timeline. Other trusted Bible interpreters would differ slightly in some of these dates. Any questions about the historical backdrop to Ezra? Okay, so we've seen the big picture, the overview of the exile's return. Let's now hear from the book of Ezra about Israel's first step of restoration under Cyrus. So Ezra 1, we're going to read the the whole first chapter, and then we'll read the first two verses of the second chapter. Ezra 1, 1 to 2, 2. Follow along as I read. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus... King of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, or had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of Yahweh, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, King of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithradath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400 shesh brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to a city. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zeraiah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. All right. So we've read the passage. Let's make some basic observations on the passage. And these observations are going to correspond to the things that have already appeared on the slide. Notice the time marker given in verse 1. It says the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus takes over the Babylonian Empire around 538 B.C. We're talking about that year or shortly afterwards, about 537 B.C. And notice... There's a reference to Jeremiah right at the beginning of the passage. What word of Jeremiah is Cyrus about to fulfill in his proclamation? What is Cyrus going to fulfill from Jeremiah? If you raise your hand, make sure you raise it high so I can see it. All right, I see a hand there. Uh, I think that might be Rob. Go ahead. Right, not just Judah and Benjamin, but yeah, that the people will return to the land. Because what was that specific prophecy Jeremiah made? How long would it take? Exactly, 70 years. Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So Judah's exile began about 607 B.C. Now it's 537 B.C. And so the prophesied 70 years of Jeremiah are complete. And Cyrus is going to bring them back into the land. Notice next, according to the text, what causes Cyrus to make his proclamation? It says Yahweh stirs up Cyrus' spirit. Cyrus sends out a proclamation throughout his whole kingdom, the whole Persian Empire. And notice some surprising details in Cyrus' proclamation. He acknowledges that Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given Cyrus all the kingdoms. In verse 2, he claims that Yahweh has commanded him to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He calls on the Jews in the empire to return to their land and rebuild the temple. And he commands that the other peoples of the empire supply the surviving Jews with valuable goods and treasures to take to Jerusalem. With this proclamation, Cyrus not only fulfills the words of Jeremiah, but also the specific words of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah, in Isaiah 44:28 said this about Cyrus. Actually, it was God speaking. He says, God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So, God prophesied Cyrus specifically would come and he would cause the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And this proclamation is all about that. Or that's one of the things accomplished with this proclamation. Notice how the Jews respond to Cyrus' proclamation. It says the leaders of Judah, Benjamin, the priests, and the Levites arise to go back. And why do they arise? Again, the text says the spirit of the Lord stirred them up to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. Now notice how they are encouraged in their mission as they set out. It says everyone around them starts to give them silver, gold, livestock, freewill offerings, and other goods. More than this, notice what Cyrus does. He returns the articles of the house of Yahweh that had been taken from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. These articles had been held in the royal treasuries of Babylon for 70 years. Now the Jews receive them back. These goods are placed in the hands of Shezbazar, who's said to be a prince of Judah. Don't really know anything about Shezbazar because he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But notice in chapter 2, when describing, right before the chapter is about to describe the people who return back, uh, back to Jerusalem, the first name on the list, the first leader mentioned in chapter 2, is not Shezbazar, but Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel features prominently in the following chapters that we're going to see today. He actually is the leader of the returning exiles, not Shezbazar. By the way, what is special about Zerubbabel's lineage according to the New Testament? Danny. Exactly. Zerubbabel is not only in the line of David, but he's in the line of Jesus and on both sides of Jesus' line. He is in Mary's line and he is in Joseph's line, though they, they're both descendants of David, Mary and Joseph, one through Solomon and one through Nathan. But both of them have Zerubbabel as an ancestor. So not insignificant that Zerubbabel is mentioned in Ezra. You may also notice the names Nehemiah and Mordecai on the list. But these are not the Nehemiah and Mordecai that you're thinking of. This is not Nehemiah from the later return, and this is not Mordecai of Esther. They just happen to be the same names. And the rest of chapter two, which we're not going to read, it gives detailed numbers and genealogical information on the families that return with Zerubbabel. The total number of returning Jews, according to Ezra 2, verse 64, is 42,360. This is how many people come back with Zerubbabel in the first wave. It's how many Jews. Of this number, about 75% are accounted for from the tribes of Benjamin, Judah, and Levi. Apparently, that means that 11,000 or so of this number are from the other 10 tribes. So mostly, we have Judah, Benjamin, and the, and the house of Levi returning to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, but also some of the other tribes. Now, compare this number, 42,000. With well, the number of men who came into Canaan the first time with Joshua. According to Numbers 26, when Israel entered the land the first time, there were 601,000 fighting men. That's men over the age of 20. 600,000. Add to that the aged, the women, and the children, and you probably have a number closer to 2 million people. So comparatively, the group returning into Jerusalem and, and around that area is pretty small this is a remnant so we've made our observations on this section let's interpret why is the number of returning Jews so small what do you think yeah Rob Not all of them return, and why wouldn't some of them return? Yeah, it could be. I think you're right. We have some that are perhaps so comfortable that they've intermingled with the peoples of the land. Certainly, some of the Jews were dispersed throughout the empire um, by the Assyrians, and then Babylonians mostly kept people together, but some Intermarried, intermingled with the people of the land and they lost their Jewish identity. Other people remain Jews, but they're just not able or not willing to return to the land or they're not willing to return yet. So there are still some Jews that are going to remain outside of Palestine. I think I mentioned in one of the sermons I, I preached previously that the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora that began during the time of Israel's captivity would continue basically for the rest of history. There would be some who would remain in Babylon or move to other parts of the Mediterranean and never return to Israel, or at least not live in Israel. They might journey for the feasts, but many Jews are going to remain outside of Palestine. Some are going to lose their Jewish identity, many will keep their Jewish identity, and some will return later. But also, let's not forget that before the Jews went into exile, they had been invaded and uh, many of their people were killed. The people who went into exile were merely the survivors of the traumatic judgments that God brought on both Israel and Judah. So, for multiple reasons, the number of Jews turning in, returning to Jerusalem is pretty small. Another question. Why does Cyrus the Persian give so much credit and glory to Yahweh? Why would he do that? What do you think? Uh, Yeah, Danny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems like a pretty pretty good explanation. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Isaiah did, did prophesy about Cyrus and prophesied about what Cyrus would do. And we also know that Daniel served under Cyrus. So there's a very good chance that Daniel showed Cyrus what was written about him in the prophet Isaiah, or somebody. Somebody showed Cyrus. And Cyrus sees that and he says, wow, this is a remarkable prophecy. This came from a prophet of Yahweh. Yahweh is a pretty great God. And so when he makes his proclamation, he gives credit to Yahweh. He says, Yahweh has given me these kingdoms, and Yahweh has called me to rebuild his temple. Now it's possible that there could be other reasons involved. Maybe God revealed himself to Cyrus in a way that's not recorded in the Bible, and Cyrus wants to give appropriate honor to Yahweh. This could be just a, not a bit of public relations, make the Jews happy, honor their God. That way the Jews will, not, will be more inclined to follow Cyrus. Certainly, we, don't necess- or we cannot conclude that Cyrus was a true follower of Yahweh. At least everything historically we know about Cyrus is that he was a, a Persian, and he followed Persian religion. But it's not unnormal for pagan rulers in the Old Testament to sometimes give credit to Yahweh. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel, and also Darius. While they still maintain their devotion to other gods, they will acknowledge that Yahweh is a special god. The god of Israel is special. So probably have a confluence of those things happening together with Cyrus' proclamation. One other thing to say about it, though, is that regardless of the extent of Cyrus' sincerity in making his proclamation, or how he, how he came to make that, that proclamation and know about Yahweh, what he said about Yahweh was true. It was indeed true that God had given Cyrus dominion. And it was indeed true that God had called Cyrus to bring the Jews back into the land and cause the temple to be rebuilt. Now think about how surprising from a human perspective, all of these developments are for the Jews. Why should the Jews be allowed to return to the land? Why should they be allowed, even commanded, to rebuild their temple? Why should the king command the people to give valuables to the Jews? And why should the people encourage the Jews by giving them so much? Why should the Jews experience such favor? From human perspective, it doesn't make that much sense. though one could say, "Well, the Jews just happened to benefit from a ruler who had policies that were favorable towards minority groups." That might be true from one perspective. But what phrase or yeah, what phrase in this passage do we see multiple times, times that tells us the real story, the real story for why these things are happening? Yeah, Rob. That's right. The Lord stirred up. The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus. And the Lord stirred up the heart of his people. It's like our theme of from Proverbs, our theme verse from Proverbs. Speaking of kings, it says the heart of a king is like a river in the Lord's hands, and God turns it wherever he wishes. So these things are not happening by chance. It's not that the Israelites are just lucky. It's God sovereignly bringing these things to pass. By the way, does this remind you of anything? These events, the Jews being called out from a foreign land to go to Canaan while being supplied with treasures from the Gentiles, treasures that would later be used in the construction of God's dwelling place? Does this remind you of anything we've seen before? Oh, I see a hand back there. That's right. Exactly, exactly. You remember in the Exodus that um, before they left, it says they plundered the Egyptians. And God granted them, granted the Jews favor in the eyes of the Egyptians that people gave freely to them. And what we see here in Ezra is like a second Exodus. It's a new start for the people of Israel. They are being called out from their foreign land. Brought back into the land that God had promised them, and they're given treasures along the way. Israel was judged, the temple worship was previously abolished, but now Israel gets to start over. So we've seen chapter one and the beginning of chapter, or we've seen chapters one and two. Let's look over at chapter three now and see what is priority one for the returning exiles. I'm going to read Ezra three. It's a whole chapter, Ezra three, one to thirteen. Let's see what comes next. Now, when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of Yahweh that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to Yahweh. For the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh, but the foundation of the temple of Yahweh had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. And appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of Yahweh. And Joshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Hanadad, with their sons and brother, brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise Yahweh according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Okay, let's make some more observations on this section. The first events of this passage take place seven months after the people return to the land. Notice that after the Jews settle into their homes... The first order of business is to rebuild the altar so that the people may again offer sacrifices. Remember, there have been no sacrifices of any kind for the Jews for 70 years. Previously, the Jews had continually offered sacrifices since coming out of Egypt. There had never been an interruption like that before. But there was for 70 years. No temple, no sacrifice. Now, how did the Jews know how to build God's altar? How did they know how to do it? They did have the the plan, so to speak, somewhere. Where do they have it? That's right, in the law. They had it in uh, in in Moses' books. Again, it's not an exhaustive description of the altar there, but enough so that they could construct it. Notice though. That the people are terrified as they set up altar worship again. It says they fear the people of the lands. The Jews are no longer the only people living in the area. Notice the word for in the middle of verse 3. That word always is supplied to give a reason, by indicating that a reason is about to be supplied from what was just stated. Notice also that the people reinstate other elements of worship according to the law. They have the daily sacrifices. Reinstated the appointed Feast of God reinstated, and they celebrate the Feast of Booths, so known as the Feast of Tabernacles. They also prepare for the rebuilding of the temple, and they obtain materials from the Tyrians and Sidonians, that is, the merchant people from the north. The following year, work on the temple building itself officially begins under Zerubbabel and Jeshua the priest. So this is probably 536 BC. Once the foundation is laid, the priests and the Temple Musicians, they make music and they give thanks to God in a public worship service. But the people's response is poignant. It says the people shout a great shout and many of the people are joyful, but some, the older ones, who had seen the first temple, they weep. They weep with a loud voice so that the shouts of joy and their loud cries of grief cannot be discerned from each other. So, with these observations, let's interpret again. Why do the people first rebuild the altar of the Lord and reinstate the sacrifices and feasts? Yes, Shay, I think that's Shay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That has to be one of the main reasons because it's stated in the text. That's the four, right? The reason for building the altar because they feared the peoples, They feared their enemies. And they knew that if they were going to succeed against their enemies, that they needed the Lord on their side. So they are motivated to rebuild the altar and to reinstate worship. Certainly there are other things going on with that desire as well. They they want to be obedient to the Lord and they recognize that um it is their duty to be obedient to the lord they need their sins covered they need their transgressions forgiven and this is what god has supplied according to the law they needed to obey the law and so they wanted to do that they knew it was not only necessary but they i'm sure they had a grateful desire to do that but certainly what's on their minds especially is that the people of the lands their enemies are all around them and so they want to reinstate worship another question Why did many of the people weep when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid? Why do the people weep? This seems like a time for being joyful. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, it's got to have something to do with the previous temple. Something about comparing the glory of the old temple to the glory of the new temple. Now, it's not fully explained here. Are we going to say something, Danny? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The circana um, the glory is certainly not there. It's a little unclear to me. I, I think I maybe need to go back and, and do some research on this. When the Shekinah glory departed, I know Ezekiel talks about the glory of God departing from the temple. Um, when that visibly happened or if that visibly happened, certainly that, that is true. The Shekinah glory is not part of the temple. But just the temple in general, how is the glory of this new temple going to compare? Now, the temple is not complete. The new temple is not complete yet. Only the foundation is laid. And yet the men who remember the old temple weep. We do get a little bit more information when we consider the prophet Haggai. Haggai, you know, appears towards the end of the Old Testament. He actually is one of the prophets who lives around Zerubbabel's time. We're going to see him a little bit later. But in Haggai 2, verses 1 to 3, this is what we read. Haggai 2, 1 to 3. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came to Haggai, or came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelteel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So God was pointing out through Haggai, he says, this new temple doesn't really compare to the old. Now, this is later in the temple's construction, but... It appears that even at the foundation of the temple, the older men who remembered, the, the so- remembered Solomon's temple, they knew the second temple would be nothing like the first. The se- this second temple, though similar in construction to Solomon's, would not have the splendor and majesty as the one built by Solomon in the days of Israel's prosperity and blessing from Yahweh. As Danny pointed out, wouldn't have the Shekinah glory. And though many temple articles were returned by Cyrus to the Jews, the Ark of the Covenant... The symbol of God's presence was gone, along with the tablets of Moses. It was never going to be recovered. And the diminished temple was really symbolic of Israel as a whole. I mean, you can imagine the perspective of the older Jews as they just see everything around them. Look at us, they would say. Look at what the nation of Israel has been reduced to. We are small in number. Our territory is pitiful. The land is full of ruins. Our enemies abound. We've lost the kingship. We've lost our independence. Even the temple is only going to be a shell of what it was. And how did it come to this? Because of our sin, they would acknowledge. Because we would not obey the Lord. Alas, O oh Israel, how you have been humbled and laid down in the dust. Even in, even in restoration, they see just how much that they've lost. So even in celebration, there is the realization of grief and sorrow. And yet, Haggai had another word for the people. If we continue on in that passage from Haggai, Haggai 2, verses 4 to 9, we see something surprising. And I think it would have been really encouraging to the people. This is assuredly what Haggai tells the people later on as they're building the temple. Here's Haggai 2, verses 4 to 9. But now take courage, rubbable, declares Yahweh. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. That's Jeshua in our passage. And all you people of the land take courage, declares Yahweh. And work, for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts. As the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says Yahweh of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. Did you catch that? It's amazing. Even in the days of this mini restoration, the return of a small number of Jews to the land, God makes clear to them that a greater restoration, a full restoration is still coming. I will shake the nations, God says. Then they will come with their wealth and I will fill this house with glory. The latter days of my temple. God says, will be greater than the former days. Not on par with the former days, but even greater than the former days. Greater than anything that any of you elders can remember from the days of Solomon's temple. says the latter days will be even greater. That would be an encouraging word, would it not? God essentially says, I'm still not done with you, O Israel. You are small now. You have lost much, yes, by my judgment. But your day of, but your ultimate day of transformation and exaltation is yet coming. Your Messiah is yet coming. Israel, I'm not done with you. So we've seen Ezra up to chapter three. In chapters four to six, which we don't have time to look at, we will look at a little bit of chapter six, but we don't have time to look at the other parts. I'll just summarize. We hear how Israel's enemies oppose and disrupt the building efforts of the Jews. The Jews become discouraged, and they even stop building the temple in the days of Cyrus. But in the days of Darius, who comes soon after Cyrus, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, I think Zechariah, the one who wrote the uh, second and last book of the Bible, they encourage Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the people so that they resume the temple construction. Israel's enemies, particularly some hostile governors, they write to Darius to try to stop the work. Oh, the Jews are trying to rebuild their temple again. Darius, you need to know about this. But when Darius finds out that Cyrus was the one who had ordered the temple construction, he not only, Darius, not only approves the Jews' work, but he orders the governors, who don't like the Israelites, to support the temple construction and give the Jews whatever they need. Let's read about the completion of the temple construction in Ezra 6. Go to Ezra 6, verses 13 to 22. Ezra 6, verses 13 to 22. Let's read. Then Tantani, the governor of the province beyond the river, shethar and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats. Excuse me. Corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed The priests, their divisions, and the Levites, and their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. The sons of Israel, who returned from exile, and all those who separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them, to seek, the Lord, to seek Yahweh, God of Israel, ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for Yahweh had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's make a few more observations on this last section. Notice the date of the temple's completion. It says the sixth year of Darius' reign. From what we understand, that means about 515 B.C., 21 years after the temple construction began. And notice the response of the people to the completion of God's temple. They offered many sacrifices and they celebrated with joy. They installed the priests and Levites in their God-ordained roles. And they also observed the Passover. But notice the details given about the three groups of celebrants in this Passover. We first have all the priests and Levites. And we hear that they have purified themselves and they are pure. That's an issue sometimes with in Israel's history, the priests not being pure, not able to actually administer the Passover. But it says, no, they're all pure. The Levites are purified with them. And then we have the second group, the sons of Israel who returned from exile. And then we have a third group, what the text describes as all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them. Now that them is significant at the very end because it distinguishes between two groups. Who is the them at the end of verse 21? Who is the them? It's a pronoun, so we have to search a little bit earlier to see where the antecedent of that pronoun uh, grammatically appears. Well, if we go back to just that same verse,
1: uh, let me find it again.
0: Verse 21, it says, the sons of Israel who returned from exile, and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. So to them, it has to go to the sons of Israel. They were the ones who were just mentioned, the sons of Israel who returned from exile. So this third group must be distinct from those people. Or else to join them doesn't really make any sense. And we'll come back to their ident- identity in just a second. But they're not. That description of those who separate themselves and the impurity of the nations, that's not the exiles. That's another group. And notice how the people keep the Passover. They keep it with joy. And notice the reason for their joy. Verse 22. It says, Yahweh had caused them to rejoice. And he had turned the heart of the king to encourage them in the work of rebuilding the house. Now, don't be thrown off by the mention of the king of Assyria. you be like, what? I thought he was gone a long time ago. Well, yes, the Assyrian empire is gone. But the Persian king, since he now rules over the land of Assyria, he, he can assume the title king of Assyria, as the king of Babylon had done before him. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon and Assyria. King of Persia, Cyrus, and and then Darius, they were the kings of Babylon, Assyria, and Persia. So that title is appropriate for them to take. All right, let's do some interpretation one more time. Who are the people of this third group celebrating the Passover with the Jewish exiles? Yeah, Rob. I think that is the interpretation that makes the most sense. Now, we're not told specifically. You could say, well, maybe they're just Samaritans, or maybe they're, they're the Jews who had already been living in the land, you know, the poor that were left behind, and they're just reuniting with their exiled brethren. I think maybe all of those things are true. But that phrase, have separated themselves from the impurity of the nations, I think we're talking about people who not only became like the nations, but also people from the nations. We're having proselytes from the Gentiles, from the Samaritans, and from repentant Jews who were living in the land, and they're joining the people for the Passover. They're joining their exiled brethren for the Passover. These converts, they recognize their impurity because they observe the zeal of the people of Israel for Yahweh, and they were drawn from the nations to worship the true God. This, by the way, was always God's intention for the people of Israel, You may remember back in Exodus 19, God says, you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase. It's like, wait, God, I thought you said that only the Levites could be the priests. He says, your role nationally will be to function as priests for the nations. You are going to mediate for them. You are going to cause them to draw near to me. You're going to cause the nations of the earth to know and serve and worship me. That was always God's intention for Israel. Of course, Israel never really lived up to that intention. But we see something of that, I would say, here in this passage. Now consider all of this. We have the purity of the people of Israel, the success in drawing some of the surrounding people from the nations to Yahweh, the completion of the temple, their faithfulness to observe the sacrifices and feasts that God required. We mentioned before that Israel is getting a new start after a second exodus. Based on all this, what does Israel's spiritual outlook for the future look like? Would you say things are looking up spiritually or they're looking down? They're certainly looking up. This looks great. The people are finally following the Lord. They're actually doing what God called them to do. This is a wonderful thing. Israel is back in the land and actually following Yahweh. But will it last? That's the question. Chapter 7 in Ezra jumps forward in time by about 50 years to the second step of restoration when Ezra returns to the land. What does Ezra find when he comes back to Israel? Well, we have to wait and find out. Unfortunately, it's going to be a little bit of a long cliffhanger, but a couple lessons from now... We'll come back to the book of Ezra, and we'll find out uh, what he says in the rest of the book. What Ezra finds, and then what Ezra has to do based on what he finds. So that's coming back. But for now, we can still appreciate certain things about the people of Israel and also uh, about God himself. Throughout these chapters of Ezra, these first six chapters, we kept seeing the phrases, the Lord stirred up, the Lord caused. And we also saw the different prophecies from Jeremiah and Isaiah, and some we didn't even mention. They came to pass for Israel. God fulfilled what he said he was going to do. And these details are not accidental. Ezra put these things in this book for his audience. So what does Ezra want his audience to understand when it comes to God, Israel, and the peoples of the world? With these phrases, the Lord stirred up, and this fulfillment of prophecy, what's God showing about himself in relation to the peoples of the world? Yeah, Rob. Yeah. I mean, the, the sovereignty, obviously, it's a theme we've seen throughout the Old Testament, but Ezra really wants to emphasize it to us. The Lord is sovereign. He can move anyone's heart to do whatever he wants at any time. When the Lord has a purpose, it will come to pass. And he will move men, he will move nations to do it. He replaced the Babylonian Empire with the Persian Empire, partly so that he could just fulfill what he promised to Israel. That's sovereignty, that's power, that's faithfulness from the God of Israel. And that was not only something for the Jews to understand, but it's also for us, right? If you are one who believes in and waits upon Yahweh then this should encourage and embolden you. It should cause you, when you suffer hardship, that you're not sure how to get through, that you can trust the Lord to sustain you. He will remember you. He will keep his promises to you. So be faithful. Remember, the hearts of all men are in the Lord's hands. He can easily move people to do unexpected things at any time. So, we ought not to say to ourselves, I'm doomed. This situation is just overwhelming. I don't see a way out. There's no way any of this can change. God has forgotten me. No, Ezra testifies that God never forgets his people. At the right time, he moves heaven and earth to accomplish deliverance and keep his promises. So, Calvary, let us wait upon the Lord. Let us rejoice. What he's already sovereignly accomplished for us, but also in what he will accomplish. He is the king with total authority. And you, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are his child. Yahweh will, for his own glory, he will bring you into times of trouble. He will also humble you when necessary. But like Israel, when you come into one of those times, understand he is not done with you yet. God will also deliver you and exalt you. Not because you deserve it, but because he is that faithful and he is that generous. And because he's made that promise. He's promised those who believe in him, those who believe in Jesus, his son, that he will deliver them and he will exalt them. Because this is all part of God giving himself glory. He will give himself the glory that he is due. And therefore his people will reap the benefit. Final comments or questions based on today's lesson? Okay. If you have any other questions or comments, feel free to email them to me. But as we end here today, let me give you some questions just to spur our thinking about application. Of course, these are not the only ways that we can apply the passage, but there's are some of the ways that came to my mind, and so I'm going to share them with you. Number one, have you been feeling anxious, depressed, or despairing due to your current difficulties? Or the actions of our government or the governments around the world make you worried or afraid? Do you fear how you'll be able to get through the future? Well, ask yourselves, how should the truths of Ezra inform you as to how you ought to change your thinking? The Lord is sovereign. And if he moves the hearts of people easily, then we should not worry. We should not fear. Number two, based on what God has done in your life already, both in moving your heart And the hearts of those around you for your good and for the glory of God? Do you worship God sincerely? Do you respond to the Lord's undeserved favor towards you with grateful obedience? And then number three. This, I guess, is the flip side of the second question. Do you actually use the Lord's favor as an excuse to pay no attention to the Lord? Do you seek the Lord when you've been humbled or given a great difficulty? But as soon as you feel restored, do you turn away from the Lord and seek the things of the world? Because that is the history of Israel, is it not? They cry out to the Lord when things are hard, but as soon as things start to go well, they just become like the nations. They don't pay attention to the Lord. They're not zealous for his law. Do we do that? May the Spirit accomplish the necessary work in our hearts today. So that's it for this week. Next week, we do hear about Esther. For real this time, we will talk about Esther. Let's pray as we close. Oh Lord God, you emphasize to us in your word again and again that you are sovereign, and that isn't something for us to just appreciate intellectually. That's something for our hearts to grab onto. Because Lord, we know. We know our flesh cries out against you and against our situation so often. You bring us into trouble, and then our flesh says, look, there's no way out for you. You'll never succeed. You'll never get through this. You're doomed. You might as well give up now and blame God. But Lord, Ezra, the truths of Ezra don't allow us to believe that. They call us not to believe that because you are sovereign. Your heart is such that you are faithful and good. You will keep your promises. You did that for Israel. You will do that for Israel. And therefore, you will do that for us. You've done that for us. And you will do that for us. We thank you for your compassion, O God. We thank you for your faithfulness. We are weak. We are really in great need of you. But Lord, we're comforted by what we see in your word, that it is precisely in our weakness that you show yourself strong. That's where you bring us so that you might glorify yourself. So God, I pray that you would provide for us, that you would deliver us when we come into trouble, when we come into temptation. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us not to, to put away our trust in you. Cause us to persevere, oh God, because you will restore. You will deliver at the right time. And you will exalt, Lord, even if it's not in this life, you will exalt when these days are through and when we are with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our Savior. I pray that you will bless Calvary. Bless them and bless the rest of their service today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Have a good week, guys. I will see you next week.